Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Today, it's great to have Steven Pinker on the podcast. Dr. Pinker is the Johnstone Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and the winner of many awards for his research, teaching, and books. He has been elected to the National Academy of Sciences and named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People and one of Foreign Policy's 100 Leading Global Thinkers. His books include How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, The Stuff of Thought, The Better Angels of Our Nature, The Sense of Style, Enlightenment Now, and most recently, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. Steven Pinker, so great to have you back on the Psychology Thanks, Podcast. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be here. I always enjoy talking to you. You're, you're, uh, you always stimulate my brain, as uh, which is the motto of our <laughs> podcast, is that we stimulate people's brains, but you stimulate my brain. Um, so you say in this new book of yours, you argue that, that, quote, rationality ought to be the lodestar for everything we think and do. Why is that? Uh, the, the very fact that you're asking that question and waiting for my answer means you've already accepted the answer, namely that we ought to persuade each other with good reasons. Now, it's not the only way that we can get other people's assent. We can bribe them, we can threaten them, we can beat them up, we can try to cancel them. But uh, if you're uh, tossing out a question, waiting for the answer, presumably pondering uh, what I'm saying, then you have already committed yourself to reason. Reason is just the, it's the, the water we swim in, it's the air we breathe. Well, you know, but that, the, the, the key part of that sentence that I asked you is the everything we do. Um, so it, it, I do, I must ask, must we always follow reason? Do I need a rational argument for why I should fall in love, cherish my children, enjoy the pleasures of life? Isn't it sometimes okay to go crazy, to go wild, to silly, to just stop making sense? Uh, absolutely. And there is a, a false a dichotomy between reason and goals, motivation, emotion. But as thinkers going back at least to David Hume have noted, reason is a means to an end. It, uh, it's a way of achieving a goal mm. using knowledge. 
they can't tell you what the goal is. If you enjoy um, uh, pain, if you enjoy being you know, miserable and hungry and cold, well, reason can help you accomplish that if that's what you want to accomplish. And it isn't going to tell you that that's not something you ought to accomplish. But whatever it is you want to accomplish, reason is the way you, you uh, gain it. Uh, but the, the, the goals are uh, not part of reason per se. Although, I'm going to add an asterisk there, one still can rationally talk about goals, such as uh, what happens when two or more of your goals come into conflict, such as having fun now versus uh, being comfortable and respected in the future. And there are also rational arguments to be had when one person's goals clash with another, uh, and that brings us into the domain of morality. But um, but there's nothing irrational about falling in love or uh, or, or dancing and uh, partying or uh, nothing. There's nothing irrational about them. Rationality, you know, I want to just talk about a second. What is rationality? Because um, I'm a big fan of Keith Stanovich's work, and I was really excited to see that you quoted him in, uh, in your book. Yeah. He often distinguishes between two types of rationality in his work. He distinguishes between instrumental rationality and epistemic rationality. Your definition of rationality seems to be the merger. Of, it's like the pithy condensing of both. So you define rationality as the ability to use knowledge to attain goals. It's kind of it kind of combines both instrumental and epistemic. In a way, yes, and that, and that is a fundamental distinction. Sometimes uh, framed as the distinction between what is true and what to do or pure reason and practical reason. The reason that I, I merged them in my own attempt at a definition, namely the use of knowledge to attain goals, is that even when it comes to epistemic rationality, what is true, you know, we don't really consider someone rational who's just, say, um, spitting out the digits of pi till uh, for all eternity, or just stating, um, using logic to state true but uh, useless facts, like, Either Paris is the capital of France or unicorns exist. Either Paris is the capital of France or the moon is made of cheese. I mean, those are all true, but we tend not to consider it to be particularly rational just to say true stuff. We, even in epistemic rationality, we have some goal of uh, understanding the world, uh, expanding our knowledge base. We have goals for which truths we prioritize. So that's why I, I merge them. But you're, you're right that there is one could say that there is a, a logical distinction between them. And at its base, I mean, rationality helps you get the things that you want. And it's very interesting, you know, the, the goal conflict thing, I'm not over that yet, because I think that I, I think about that all the time, because we can have two long-term goals that conflict within ourselves, right? It's not always like a goal conflict is some short-term one weighing it against a long-term it can be, you know, we can have two long-term goals. And what is like the, is there like a system in the brain, like a, a meta rationality system that like can help us adjudicate two rational potential avenues we could take, be taking? That it's a great, oh, it makes complete sense. But the way I would put it is <laughs> rationality is itself meta. That is, uh, you know, if you had a meta rationality, then you say, well, gee, do we have yet another part of the brain for the meta, meta rationality? But taking a leaf, turtles all, the, turtles way all the way down or all the way up, mm -hmm. but take, taking a leaf from uh, the field of linguistics and cognitive science, which uh, going back at least to Noam Chomsky and George Miller, emphasized the 
<clears throat> the power of recursive computation and recursive representation. Namely, an idea can contain an idea, including an example of itself. A reason, reasoning process can step back and consider its own shortcomings or flaws, and we can then in turn step up a level and criticize the criticism of our reasoning. Uh, and there's, uh, as long as you have the computational power to embed a proposition in, an, in a proposition or have a routine call an instance of itself, that automatically makes it meta for as many levels as you as you as you want until you of course your the mind boggles because it just gets too complicated to keep track of them but it, it is essential and, and i'm glad you you mentioned this that not only when it comes to adjudicating among long-term goals much harder i mean we all of course are faced with the tension between immediate gratification and longer-term satisfaction i mean that's just kind of the stuff of of self-control of, of, of maturity uh, but you're right that we often have long-term goals that come into conflict. And I kind of consider in, in talking about um, reasoning about goals, I think of uh, adjudicating among goals within a person to be kind of what we mean when we talk about wisdom and adjudicating among goals from of different people, kind of what we mean when we talk about ethics and, and morality. Uh, but yeah, there's no obviously correct answer to how should I trade off creating my masterpiece with spending time with my kids. Uh, both of them are long-term goals, at least develop building a, a, a satisfying relationship with your kids. And it is part of the agony of being a mature adult that one has to grapple with these conflicts and there's no single correct answer. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's a question I want to ask you and it's, it's opening up a can of worms and what is truth? <laughs> because I, I mean, I've I've heard other very smart people attempt to to uh, to discuss such a topic, and it can go in a very long, you know, conversation direction. But I feel like that's kind of the elephant in the room. When we talk about rationality. Truth is a very important part of rationality. You want to use correct knowledge, right, to attain goals. You don't want to use, you know, your definition: the ability to use knowledge to attain goals. The the inference there is that the ability to use correct knowledge yeah. there's a lot of knowledge going around these days well, according <laughs> but, to one you know, sort of fairly well-known characterization of knowledge borrowed from the field of philosophy mm -hmm. knowledge is sometimes defined as justified true belief so by definition mm -hmm. knowledge is true if it isn't we don't call it knowledge we call it belief um, we don't say john uh, knows the moon is made of cheese Although we could say John believes the movement is made of cheese. When you use no and knowledge, you're kind of committing yourself to, to uh, truth uh, behind the scenes. Then but you're right. It does raise the question of what do we mean by truth? And again, this is a question much discussed in the field of philosophy and in, in many ways above um, my pay grade. A, a, a famous definition of truth from Tarski is that to say that X is true is to say X. Now that for many people that's not particularly satisfying or tr truth is what is the case, but it's like reason. It's, it's a, um, it doesn't submit to a conventional definition because it's deeper than that. Uh, we, you can't have a definition of reason unless you know how to reason. You can't talk about truth unless you already are grounded in some tacit commitment to truth. Otherwise, nothing that you say would be, in a sense, worth saying. 
it'd be, oh, I'll take it or leave it. I'm just, I'm just making noise with my mouth. I'm not making any claim to anything that is uh, uh, factually accurate or, or worthy of your belief. So we're kind of committed to truth, even when we start to persuade, explain. And I think, you know, one way of, of, of parsing this somewhat um, enigmatic definition of truth, that to say X is true is to say X, is that it's just kind of what we mean when we say stuff in the first place. And so there is something almost superfluous about saying, um, differentiating between um, the, you know, the, 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 the world is round is true and the world is round. I mean, this just raises the question, can it be rational in certain instances to be completely deluded um, delusional as well about uh, something, but in a way that delusion in its, if, if it in itself is what gets you to attain your goal, then would that be the more rational thing to have incorrect knowledge? Well, it could be, well, we can say that it'd be, we relativize it and say that it is a, a rational way to attain a particular goal. I don't think we would uh, call it, uh, and again, I'm, um, especially as someone who uh, is very interested in words, I know that it's not up to me to legislate the meaning of words, when I answer a question of, uh, does this, does the word apply? I'm kind of tapping into uh, our, uh, the community's intuitions of when it's natural to use the word. So uh, if the word means what people understand the word to mean. And I think most, so, so the answer to your question, is it rational? Is really, would most people use the word rational in um, uh, describing that? And I think most people would not. Uh, I mean, unless you narrow it and say, is this a rational way of um, you know, doing whatever he wants to do? But is it rational to believe things that we, standing outside that person, know to be false? Uh, I, I think no. Uh, the answer is no. And, and I, my own so, admittedly somewhat makeshift definition of rationality, namely the use of knowledge to attain goals, well, packed into that is knowledge. And as we spoke about just a couple of minutes ago, the conventional uh, understanding of knowledge is justified true belief, and so true is packed into that. So in a sense, in the most general sense, no, you can't be rational if you um, believe things that are not true, at least if there are reasons for you to know that it's not true, or reasons for us to know that it's not true. Yeah, Stephen, this is really this is really interesting. I mean, you're really this is really interesting. So, you you distinguish between logic and reasoning. Can you can you be completely illogical about something but still make a rational decision about it? I don't think you can be illogical, but you can uh, you have to apply a lot more than logic, because uh, the problem about logic is that it kind of basically just expands what is already in the premises. If something is true, then it tells you, you know, some other things that are true and some things that aren't, that aren't true and some things that might or might not be true. But because rationality involves uh, the pursuit of some goal, even if the goal is understanding something more uh, deeply or more accurately, um, logic doesn't get you there. You've got to, there's just, they're just too many things you can prove. You can prove all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, crazy but irrelevant uh, things. If P is Q, then P or Q is true, and so is P or Q or, or uh, R or P or Q or R or S, and you could you know, spin out all kinds of useless true statements indefinitely. So uh, logic isn't enough. Moreover, there are if you are applying nothing but logic, there's a sense in which that can be 
irrational in the sense that you are deliberately foregoing the use of possibly relevant knowledge. The point about logic is it's, it's formal in the sense that logic actually doesn't even care about the content of sentences. It cares only about their form, about how propositions or predicates and arguments are joined by ands and ors and ifs and nots and alls and necessary and possible. But it really kind of doesn't care what those sentences are about, whether they're about the moon being made out of cheese or or um, uh, uh, you know, little green men emerging from flying saucers. Uh, a predicate is a predicate, and then logic allows you to apply uh, that predicate to new, new, new sentences. Uh, in real life, uh, and, and oh, and not only is that, what lo- is that what logic is all about, but if you're really being a logician, you may not make inferences that aren't licensed by the premises and the conclusions. Uh, you may not kind of drag in your your knowledge, your beliefs, your conjectures. And that's kind of a crazy thing uh, to do. So, for example, you know, if you're a geometry student and you're asked to prove that the uh, in an isosceles triangle the two angles are equal, now a perfectly rational thing to do would be to you know pull out a protractor and measure one angle and measure the other angle and you say, hey, they're 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 the same as best I can tell. Now you don't get credit on a geometry test if you do that even though in real life, that's exactly what you, you might do. But you're not using the rules of the system, namely the rules in this case of Euclidean geometry, which allow a certain number of, of axioms and rules of inference, and you have to stick to those. You can't pull out your ruler and your protractor. That's not very rational, but that's what logic, uh, strict logic demands. And likewise, in all kinds of reasoning, and, and we, ex, many experiments are shown, show that people are, in this sense, um, yeah, illogical but rational, uh, or at least non-logical but rational. They can't help but mixing logic in with their real-world knowledge, even though, strictly speaking, logic doesn't care about real-world knowledge. So if you say, for example, um, all, all, um, all plant matter is healthy, uh, tobacco is plant matter, therefore tobacco is healthy. Is that a valid inference? And the answer is yes, it's a valid inference. Uh, if you know all X is Y and, and uh, uh, P is X, then P is Y. That's what the rules tell you. Now, you give that to people and you say, solve this just as a logic problem. And they, like, they won't do it. They can't block out of their heads an idea, tobacco, that's really toxic substance. What are you talking about? Is it yeah. healthy? I say, no, no, forget what you know about t- tobacco. Just pay attention to the uh, the all and the yeah. is, and yeah. ordinary yeah. people have a lot of trouble doing that. And so is that irrational? Well, not in everyday life, but it is illogical in the sense that in the yeah. you, in the actual application of the rules of logic, you're, you're breaking the rules of the game. Now, there are some places where we, in fact, we don't want people to be so rational. Uh, We want them to be logical. So, for example, if we have a moral principle, you may not prejudge someone by their their race or religion. If you're screening for terrorists, for example, uh, even if you have statistical data that say that people of one religion are more likely to be suicide terrorists than people of another religion, you and it, there's a sense in which it would be more rational to scrutinize them more. We decide on moral grounds. No, you can't do it. You got to follow the rule. All people have equal rights. 
Uh, so the ability to be at least to sometimes turn on our logic and uh, and ignore what we know. Um, likewise, in the courtroom, there may be evidence that's highly relevant to the case, but if it was illegally obtained, if it was inadmissible because it referred to the person's criminal record or racial statistics, we say, uh-uh, we're going to follow this strict logical rule system. You must throw out what you as an ordinary person know. So it's there uh, sometimes when it's actually good that we're not so uh, that we can turn off the totality of our rationality and apply rules exactly. Or another example is, uh, you know, is, a, is a dolphin a, a fish or a mammal? Well, if we apply everything we know, well, fish, they swim, they're streamlined, um, you know, they, they live in the ocean, you'd say, yeah, a, a dolphin's a fish. When we apply kind of the strict logic of science, namely a fish belongs to uh, one class and mammals to another, and if you are warm-blooded and suckle your, th your, your young and have uh, fur, then you're a mammal, even if you look like a fish. Well, then again, we're turning off our knowledge, applying strict definitions and rules in a more logical mode of thinking, and that's what makes science possible. You know, doesn't that contradict your idea that rationality ought to be the lodestar for everything we think and do? Didn't that just contradict that? Well, there is a kind of meta. You no, know, it's a good, a good question, um, and there's a kind of meta rationality where we can decide, depending on our goals, what um, tools of rationality to apply and which ones to sideline. So, if our goal, logic, example, if our goal is justice. Um, that's not yeah. the same goal as, say, efficiency or um, uh, the best actuarial statistics. And we might decide, well, justice is more important. Let's turn off our statistical reasoning. Let's apply this ironclad rule. And if your higher level goal is justice, then again, since rationality is always in pursuit of a goal, you might decide that one kind of rational thinking uh, must be uh, disabled and another kind deployed. You you make a point in your in your book that there can be no trade-off between rationality and social justice or any other moral or political cause. Um that's a, that's a heavy statement I really want to unpack that for our listeners because I think that people's intuitions is that they is not that. Yes, right. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people's intuitions. Yeah. Yeah. So can you unpack what you mean by that and maybe and then we can get into um into your into the essential features of morality as you do in your book. Yeah, if you believe that social justice can be itself be justified, there are reasons to pursue it. It's not just a battle between uh, our side and, and, and the bad guys. Now, admittedly, a lot of people who claim to pursue social justice are doing that, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, in which case they've got to live with the possibility that the other side might be stronger than them and, and uh, crush them. But if they're hoping to um, persuade open-minded third parties, uh, if they're hoping to have reasons for what they do, then you've got to uh, follow the laws of reason. You, uh, including factual uh, accuracy. Is it the case that, for example, African-Americans are disadvantaged relative to uh, white people? There are a lot of people on the, on, on the right who would say, no, it's the other way around. It's uh, the, the white people who are oppressed, white working class people. Well, if you think they're wrong, you better have reasons to, to uh, show why they're wrong. 
Um, if you think that particular measures, such as reparations, such as compensatory policies, are morally justified, well, either they are or they aren't. And if they are, then you should be able to provide those reasons. Uh, if you can't, then, uh, well, maybe you should rethink them, but you're certainly not going to recruit others, or at least you're not going to recruit others who are um, uh, you know, open-minded and aren't just joining a mob for the fun of being part of a mob. Now, you could concede that it's all about mob rule. Our mob is bigger than their mob. But again, if you do that, then say goodbye to uh, recruiting uh, uh, hitherto unaffiliated people and say goodbye to uh, claiming that, that, that you're right when the other side happens to be stronger than you are. Do you feel like you're, you're ever misunderstood? Oh, you might say that. I know the answer is that. Honestly, yes. I, I, I read an article. I, this comes up in my head because I read an article, a, a criticism of you, but it was framed in like, why is Stephen Pinker far right now all of a sudden? And now I don't get the sense that you're, you've suddenly become a far right, you know, in terms of politics. Yeah, that would be an understatement. I'm on record as the, uh, I think I'm the second largest contributor to the Democratic Party among Harvard faculty. So let's get that on the okay. record. Let's get that on the record. You know, as right I sometimes say, because, you know, a, a lot of academics and intellectuals live at a hypothetical place that I call the left pole. So, you know, when you're at the, when you're at the north pole, all directions are south. Uh, when you're at the left pole, all directions are, are right. And if you, when you're sitting at the left pole, anything that diverges from a pretty rigid set of orthodoxies is considered, you know, on the right. Uh, I, I consider that to be a uh, pathology of some of the uh, leftism uh, in academia and journalism. Um, that that there's uh, it is so rigid. It's such a um, uh, a catechism, uh, like religious catechism. There's just no room for dissent. And uh, just like anyone who doubts the Trinity is a, a heretic, anyone who doubts certain uh, sets of axioms uh, on the hard left is considered to be on the right. But no, there's no. Certainly, the right doesn't consider me on, to be on the right. Yeah, you know, this is it is interesting because it does seem like something has changed in the last ten years or so, five, ten years, um, where um, you know maybe twenty years ago. If you published something, a scientific finding, and the finding had like a, it it didn't, it wasn't automatically politicized. It didn't automatically make you think the author must be on a, a certain political view because they're presenting a certain form of knowledge. But there's something these days about where knowledge is so, the knowledge that you present is so inextricably intertwined with perceptions of your political, personal political stance. I just haven't seen that so tied together in in my past. Um, but it, it's so interesting. Like, you know, you could just you just make a point about something where you, you think the evidence is suggesting, like, I think there might be some progress. <laughs> you know, when when you look at data, and then they're like, oh, he's on the far right. You know, because he. But it, it's. But it, I feel like this is something new. Like, do you so know? What I think mean? it's not brand new, and I can recall you know strains of it. You know, way back when I was a college student, when there was the mm. you know the Marxist Leninist Social Socialist United. Uh, Workers' Party, uh, and uh, among the popular among students, you're right to, to have perceived a change. And I think things got really took a a, a lurch around um, uh, you know, three three four years ago. Um, and John Haidt has written about this as well. Where I think he I think he mm -hmm. fingered 2016 as the turning point. 
Now, I don't know if it's that Donald Trump suddenly polarized the whole country. I don't, I don't think so. Um, I don't know. Didn't help. It, 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 it sure helps. I don't know if it's that social media led to mutually reinforcing um, uh, clacks and, and cheerleading squads. Uh, or if there was just, just sometimes there are social trends that for uh, chaotic and unpredictable reasons gain momentum that have a, uh, a energy of their own. It's a good question. Yeah, it's just, it's a fascinating, like, psychological. Yes. Problem. Um, yeah. Um, you, you asked the question, uh, it's it's funny. I would be reading your book, and then I would like think a question myself, and then the next page you'd ask that question. I guess you you tried to think through what people would would come up. So you ask, is knowledge always power? Sometimes it really is rational to plug your ears with wax. Ignorance can be bliss, and sometimes what you don't know can't hurt you. Uh, so can we riff off off that sure. idea a little bit? It actually is related to an earlier point I made about uh, can you be well, yes, rational? You're by, having the rational methods. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right that it can. Here I um, was influenced by the, uh, the, the great uh, political theorist Thomas Schelling, who uh, way back 60 years ago in his book, The Strategy of Conflict, explained a lot of uh, puzzles and paradoxes of negotiation and bargaining and threats and promises, and um, articulated something that I think people have known for probably for millennia, that sometimes there can be a strategic advantage to being uh, ignorant, irrational, uh, out of control. I mean, a simple example, you know, the, the, the Brinks truck that goes to the bank and picks up the sacks of money uh, at the end of every day. Mm. And there's a sticker on the side of the truck that says, driver does not know combination of safe. So it's kind of flaunting his ignorance to his advantage, because if he doesn't know the combination, oh, yeah. then you can't, then, 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 then the, the robber can't put a gun to his head and say, open the safe or I'll blow your brains out. And he can credibly say, I just don't know the combination. And so it's useless to blow his brains out. So there are cases in which um, ignorance is a strategic advantage. There are cases in which um, uh, powerlessness is a strategic advantage. If protesters lie in front of the, uh, on the railroad tracks, then the uh, conduct the engineer of the train could just you know keep going, knowing that they'll have to scramble if they want to save their own lives. On the other hand, if they handcuff themselves to the tracks, then the engineer has got to stop the train. Um, you know, likewise, the suicide terrorist who is has the explosives uh, attached to his body to go off with the slaves jostling uh, out of his control, he can't be you know, persuaded to uh, uh, you know to 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 run away. Um, or it can't be, it can't be attacked. And then there are also um, uh, cases in which irrationality can be a strategic advantage. Namely, if uh, someone can't be threatened, if they, if their own self-interest means nothing to them, then you can't uh, th credibly threaten them because they can threaten you right back by refusing to comply. In fact, they don't even have to threaten you back. They just have to be so crazy that it's uh, th there's no point. I mean, this is sometimes sometimes just called the in, in the context of uh, international relations, the madman theory, uh, named after the alleged tactic that Richard Nixon um, deployed during the Vietnam War of uh, flying nuclear armed bombers alarmingly close to the Soviet border, uh, 
uh, allegedly to make the Soviets think that he was so unbalanced that they better not mess with him. And if they knew what was good with him, they, they, they better pressure their North Vietnamese clients to uh, to make concessions like that guy's crazy. Don't uh, you know, don't deal with him uh, or don't at least don't don't try to uh, uh, push him because uh, who knows what he might do. He might even do something that's crazy for himself. And, you know, in our interpersonal relations, you know, we've, we've many of us had experience with, you know, uh, high maintenance romantic partners and, and hotheads and, uh, you know, and, and borderlines and people who kind of get what they want because there's just no reasoning with them. So now the problem, of course, with these paradoxical tactics uh, is that since you have taken yourself out of the game of persuasion and reason, you've kind of left the other guy no choice but to kind of take you out uh, if they ever have the opportunity because there's no reasoning with you. Um, so it does come with that, that disadvantage. And of course, if both sides play it, uh, as in a game of chicken, where, uh, as it's often been noted, how do you win at chicken? Well, if you put a... Um, you know, if you put a, a, a club on your steering wheel and then climb into the back seat and a brick on the accelerator so the car is no longer in your control, then the other guy's got to swerve. On the other hand, if it occurs to both teenagers to try that at the same moment, it can be a recipe for disaster. So even the rationality of uh, the strategic rationality of irrationality can have its limits. Sounds like you're describing uh, most celebrity relationships <laughs> as described in TMZ. <laughs> TMZ uh, news. <laughs> Sounds like both of them are paradoxical rationality of a rational emotion. That's the technical term of this paradox. Yes, right? indeed. And and uh, to add to the, uh, uh, the the sometimes mind dizzying implications, we can also sometimes deploy them against ourselves. The most famous wow. example being uh, Odysseus, who uh, was able to hear the sirens' songs without steering his ship onto the rocks because he had his sailors um, plug their ears with wax and tie him to the mast. So he was incapable of ordering them to uh, sail toward the sirens. They were not tempted by the sirens. So the, uh, the voluntary incapacitation and the voluntary ignorance in, in the case of Odysseus and his sailors respectively was a higher order advantage in uh, his own self-control. And we, we, you know, we, we often do that. In fact, it's often considered the most effective means of self-control rather than just exerting brute willpower, which is uh, kind of beyond most of our powers. If you just make it impossible for you to succumb, to succumb to temptation later, that is, you know, don't don't buy the brownies in the first place. Then when you get hungry at midnight, uh, you won't be tempted to eat them. Or if you are tempted to eat them, it won't matter because they're not there. Totally. I've been meaning to buy one of these jars that you put your iPhone in at night and you, it, you set a timer. It, it won't open it up for you. <laughs> exactly. And, <laughs> so. and it's sometimes called Odyssean self-control after the, uh, after yeah. the Odyssey. Makes a lot of sense. Um, is it irrational to think taboo thoughts? And then my follow-up question, is it rational to condemn someone merely for the thinking of their thoughts? Yeah, another fascinating topic on the, the, the possible 
you know, the boundary conditions for rationality, where, uh, and this, this is work by uh, Philip Tetlock and, and uh, some collaborators, on the um, yeah. uh, psychological phenomenon that we do tend to deem certain thoughts evil to think, even though one might reason that, uh, you know, no harm, no foul, what goes on in the privacy of your head is no one else's business. That's often not the way we think or that, that um, discussing, even discussing some things as hypothetical possibilities can be morally compromising. Uh, and Tetlock gives examples like the taboo trade-off. How much money should we spend to uh, save a little girl's life? Um, now, you can't avoid making that decision, at least implicitly, because the hospital can't drain its entire budget to provide the absolute cutting edge medical treatment for one sick child at the expense of all the other sick children. Uh, how much should we spend to preserve the environment, uh, to save an endangered species? It seems kind of dirty to put a price on these things. You know, in a sense, we don't have a, a choice and often it's done kind of in the shadows so that we do it, but we don't talk about it. Or another example is the um, heretical counterfactual. Uh, this is what got Salman Rushdie into trouble for merely depicting an alternative life history of Muhammad in which he was tempted by the devil instead of by, by God and, and he nearly paid with his life when, the, when a fatwa was imposed on him by uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, or uh, that sounded a little exotic, so I actually came up with a real life example that's, uh, that affects all of us. This is uh, a true story that uh, I heard of a party game that people played after dinner where they said um, uh, the game was, of course, you know, none of us around this table are the least bit racist or, or bigoted or prejudiced. But let's just say hypothetically that you were. Which ethnic group would you be prejudiced against? Now, that's kind of a game you really don't want to play, uh, even though you're not confessing to racism. There's something about confessing to hypothetical racism that's almost as bad as confessing to the real thing if you're even allowing your mind to go there i saw a movie where they did that and the dinner and the and the wife broke up with the guy uh based on his answer she said you would really well, maybe that's what maybe that's <laughs> yeah, where yeah. it came from uh well, I, I was yeah remember, there was a movie I, i'm gonna try to remember what the movie was i remember my yeah, family yeah. dumped her boyfriend when uh, when he answered oh. jews <laughs> yeah um, and yeah, then there's the um uh, what was the, the uh, third type of trade-off is the, um, the heretical counterfactual, the taboo trade-off, and the forbidden base rate. Uh, if you are, uh, actually we even touched on this earlier in the conversation, uh, if you're screening at the airport for terrorists, um, are you allowed to consider the statistics of whether, you know, Buddhists, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, and Protestants, uh, their, their base rate of committing terrorism. If you're a good Bayesian reasoner, that's exactly what you should do. Um, in, in admitting someone to university, in judging them in a criminal courtroom, if you wanted the statistically cutting edge, state-of-the-art, most accurate possible prediction of how well they would do, then you should throw into the equation their gender and their race and their religion and but that is, to say that's, that's kind of emotionally icky would be an understatement, to say nothing of politically inflammatory. And so uh, certain base rates we consider to be kind of immoral to, 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 to think about. 
Now, and as Tenlock em uh, emphasizes, this is not completely irrational because in our social lives, we um, pick our friends and our allies, not just by what they do, but by who they are. Namely, has this potential friend, not, not just has he treated me well so far, but if the chips were down and if he were ever tempted to stab me in the back when my back was turned or to sell me down the river, would he? Uh, and of course, when we pick our, our, our allies, our friends, we want to peer into their soul and know what they're capable of, not just what they've done so far. And which thoughts they're capable of thinking is very much relevant to that, that judgment. Uh, you know, if you were, uh, if someone said, how, for how much money would you um, uh, sell your child or betray your spouse or be unfaithful to your spouse as in the movie Indecent Proposal? Um, you know, the correct answer is not, hmm, well, what are you offering? The correct answer is, I'm offended that you asked that question. That is, you're indicating that there's certain relationships that are sacred. The problem being that what's rational in the realm of choosing our friends and allies is not so rational when we are setting policy for an entire society, when we're doing science, where we might really want to uh, have the most accurate uh, calculation of costs and benefits and not project our friendships and our, our romantic relationships onto running a government or doing science. But why do, in our heads, we let off the hook fiction writers? I don't think anyone looks at Stephen King. You read his books, you see what he's capable of thinking True, of. Yeah. But I don't I don't feel like we we project that onto him. You know, we we, we, we like Stephen King. We're like, oh, he's probably a good guy. <laughs> I don't think people. You know, do well, you know what I mean? No, it's, it's a great question, and actually, I mean, I don't know if anyone. I mean, I, I would love to see someone explore this. So I'll just toss off some ideas. Now, it's not totally innocent, uh, innocuous, as in the case of Salman Rushdie. I mean, it worked with Stephen mm -hmm. King, and we, uh, it did not. It, it, it didn't work so well for for Salman Rushdie. Uh, and even in the case of um, you know our culture, there have been novelists who have been condemned. I think it was Brett Easton Ellis who depicted scenes of female sexual torture and mutilation that were a little too close for comfort. And there was, at least at the time, uh, some of this lack of forgiveness that we do, you're right, extend to uh, um, um, uh, Stephen King. It, partly it's, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna riff here, because I don't know the answer, but I think it's a fascinating question. Yeah. Partly, fascinating. partly there may be certain conventions where because the convention already exists, someone working within that convention is giving, given a pass. And the murder mystery is a uh, classic example. The, you know, the Agatha Christie and the, all the, that whole genre of, um, uh, are, are ones where we as a culture have anointed it as an acceptable cultural form. And we don't think the worse for the writers who operate within that genre. And it may be that you know, for certain genres of horror, um, there can be changing uh, mores so that we do conventionalize them as an acceptable um, as an acceptable genre or form. Uh, although there there are sometimes tensions at the boundaries, like the uh, where you do have some guardians, blue noses, saying that uh, you know, violent entertainment, Quentin Tarantino. Um, uh, comics in the 1950s, uh, certain kinds of violent movies, and indeed different constituencies do make 
different moral arguments, such as the um, arguments against uh, pornography or against sexualized violence against women, where someone who uh, the genre itself may be deemed dangerous and the people who uh, do think those thoughts might be morally condemned. Uh, but anyway, it's an inter uh, maybe there's a, a PhD thesis for some brilliant uh, English literature student in that. Yeah. For sure. Someone needs to analyze American Horror Story, the TV series, because that is uh, as extreme as can be. But I don't think the writers of it get in, get in trouble. It'd be interesting to, you know? to, uh, for someone to go over the history of popular fiction. And, and I think there are probably at every historical era, there probably are uh, debates and moral condemnation at the, at the boundaries. And then um, the culture itself can sometimes change the boundaries. Um, yeah, I guess this this is just another one of the examples where context is everything. You know, you you if you're on a date and you share the fact that you have fantasies, you know, and have conjured up ideas of, you know, a serial killer and in a small town with supernatural elements, your date's going to run for the hills. But if you're at a sci-fi convention and you talk about your new plot for a story, people are like, oh, that's really clever and creative. So this is indeed one of those cases of context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so why is rationality so uncool? Yeah, people do. First of all, there is the confusion that we talked about before between rationality and coldness, joylessness, uh, dourness. Uh, and that just that, that just uh, if you if you pardon the expression, that's just irrational. It's a non it's a non sequitur. Uh, uh, there is, and there always has been a, well, always since the since the 19th century, there has been a romantic movement that valorizes um, spontaneity, authenticity, um, and so, and and of course, the romantics have all the great art. Uh, so uh, that has has led to the the the, the cool uh, uh, connection. Mm. Yeah. Well, do you do you think you're making it cool? <laughs> I, I would love to. I think it's be, probably beyond my powers. But if, I, if that were an outcome, I would be delighted. I I think, and I by the way, I do, I do think you are to a certain extent. But I think that you need to like for your book launch, you know, you need to like pair with like Snoop Dogg <laughs> yes. and like. I'm not, you know, I'm like serious and get him like being like, I love this new book, you know, on rationality and why it matters, you know, while we smoking a joint or something. And, you know, like, I feel like, well, know, there is, yeah. um, I mean, there's certain, you know, comedians who are, uh, who, who work in that thing, you know, like, like Bill Maher. Uh, also mm. there is, there is this kind of eccentric, um, uh, culture called the rationality community. That uh, I think probably unsuccessfully tries to make rationality cool, although they at least they make yeah. it a thing. Um, and you know, as I say, and, and there there are people who are um, associated with it: Scott Alexander, um, Julia mm -hmm. Galef, uh, Elliot Yadkowski, to some extent Robin Hanson, Scott Aronson. Um, the 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 problem being, I mean, there, there are a couple of problems. One of them is like any community. Clubs develop their own internal culture very quickly, as we know as psychologists, throw a bunch of 11-year-olds together and, and pretty soon they have their own uh, lingo, their own, uh, their own habits, and that's true of any community. Uh, the other thing that, you know, ultimately having a, a, a club for rationality kind of misses the point. It's like everyone should be rational. 
uh, it shouldn't be a, a niche like you know stamp collecting or 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 right. you know cosplay. Um, of course, I think you know they they'd be the first to agree, and I give them credit for mm. trying to put it on the on the radar as something that is at least potentially uh, cool and that ought to be cooler. Yeah, it shouldn't be geeky. It should not be it geeky. Be geeky exactly. rational. Yeah, I agree. And look, I think that part of the blame is the Spock character. But the more that I read your book and, and really understand what you're saying, I feel like Spock was more logical than rational. You know, because like to be rational, there's this like, what do you, what does a person want? There's a very human dimension of it um, in the way that you describe uh, it. Indeed. That perhaps. Yeah. In, indeed. And of course, yeah. warmth, love, friendship. Uh, us, our being social animals and emotional animals, there's nothing irrational about that. Uh, you know, yeah. except when we it conflicts with uh, other goals or it conflicts with someone else's goals for love and pleasure and and, and warmth and social connection. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, wow, there's so much rich content in your book. I'm trying to like think through like, okay, where do I want to go next? Here's what. Let's talk about the tragic the tragic trade off. Between hits and false alarms. Oh yes, so this is, um, or misses and correct rejections. What's a rational observer to do? Right. Um, you know, this is one of the motivations for writing this book is a, a, an intuition that I think many people in our field sometimes have, namely they're just some tools that we use to understand phenomena that really ought to be part of conventional wisdom, and one of them is the tool that that, that you and I and and uh, and, our, and our students and fellows. Uh, um, academics learned in perception class, what's uh, called uh, signal detection theory. Uh, originally applied, at least in our field, applied to the, 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 the human subject in the booth with the headphones pressing a button whenever he hears a sound. And uh, ha has he heard it? Hasn't he? Well, there's no answer to that question when the sound is some, just at the th very threshold of hearing. He can either say, well, yeah, I guess I heard it, or I'm not sure whether I heard it. A lot depends on whether you pay him uh, for uh, correct uh, detections, hits, whether you penalize him for false alarms. And there's a, a mathematics as to how the ideal observer ought to respond in cases where they're detecting something uh, under conditions of noise. They, they may detect it, they may not. And there's uh, a, you can predict what, uh, as they set their trade-off, their, their cutoff, I mean, between being trigger happy or yay saying, you know, saying yes in the slightest hint, being much more conservative, being gun shy, uh, naysaying, defaulting to no unless they're really positive. How do you set that threshold? Well, it depends on how bad the costs are for a false alarm compared to a miss. So that's the, there's a mathematics on how to do that optimally, but the way of thinking, namely, often in life, we just don't know the truth. We're fallible, we're, uh, none of us is omniscient. We have a good guess. We like to think that when we think we see something or detect something or hear something, it's true more often than not, but it, it can't be true all the time. What do we do? And the answer is, well, think carefully about how bad it is to be wrong in each of those two ways, uh, namely you, you miss or you uh, false alarm, and set your cutoff accordingly. Now, why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant to things like medical decision making. Uh, there's a blob on a scan. Is it cancer or is it a harmless cyst? Uh, 
First of all, in all signal detection problems, the imperative should be to increase your sensitivity. That is, fine-tune your, your judgment, your instruments, your forensics, so that you pull apart the signal and noise and you there are the fewest possible uh, opportunities for confusion. But given that you're never going to be perfect, when you set, uh, you should set your cutoff mindful of the uh, uh, each type of cost. In the case of a cancer, it could be how bad would it be to have painful and disfiguring surgery if I uh, am cancer-free versus how much of a risk am I taking with my life if I really do have cancer and I fail to operate. Um, in the case of the judicial system, and I talk about signal detection theory in the courtroom, there's evidence as to whether the suspect committed a crime or not. It's never perfect. We, a jury nonetheless has to render a verdict. We, re we reckon the costs in that case, not in pain and suffering, not in dollars and cents, but in terms of justice. How abominable is it to send an innocent person to prison or, or even worse to send them to the, to, 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 uh, uh, the gallows versus uh, how much justice is, is, is denied if you let a guilty person go free? No correct answer, since there's never a objectively correct answer for questions of goals, of, of costs, including moral costs, but it's good to be clear as to what costs you're willing to pay or not. Classically, the criterion, going back to uh, uh, just Judge Blackstone, is better to let 10 guilty people go free than to uh, falsely convict one innocent. Um, now, even that's not totally arbitrary. I think you can make arguments as to why that's reasonable, but it's an example the straight out of signal detection theory of figuring out the costs of the two kinds of errors and setting a cutoff accordingly. Oh, this is tricky stuff. I mean, there's no, well, there's a trade, <laughs> trade-offs are always tricky, right? Trade-offs are always tricky, but what's, what, what is always good is to know when you're faced with them. Um, again, subject to Phil Tetlock's point that sometimes people don't like to think about trade-offs. They might even think it's immoral to think about trade-offs. We're going to trade one yeah, thing off against is, another, yeah. such as, um, you know, should there be, should people be allowed to sell their kidneys on eBay? Uh, you know, there is an argument there that, you know, everyone wins, no one's the, the worse off, but there's a lot of moral opposition to anything that smacks of quid pro quo when it comes to a sacred commodity, namely organs. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's lots of examples we, we could bring up. Prostitution um, is a contemporary example. Sex work, as, as we now call it, where there's a debate has been revived. Um, in uh, older times, we, we forget that there was this debate, that people were able to buy their way out of jury duty or out of military service. Mm. They were able to sell their votes. Um, mm. So these things do change with the moral evolution of societies. Um, I do feel like, in general, though, utilitarian reasoning is uncool, is not as cool. Well, you know? yes, and my, my um, colleague... Like, you, have a heart. you don't have a heart if you have utilitarian Well, I think we're, we're, we're often divided. I, I think you're right that it does seem... I think my colleague Joshua Green calls it nerd morality. Uh, and it is a kind of... You know, it's a cost-benefit analysis. On the other hand, a lot of what we credit as our our most glorious milestones of moral progress came from 
utilitarian reasoning, like the decriminalization of homosexuality. It's a straightforward utilitarian argument. No one's harmed. Uh, no harm, no foul. Or um, and um, animal uh, rights movement that uh, suffering is bad. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It's a question of how much you can suffer. Uh, the decriminalize decriminalization of heresy. Uh, no one's, as Thomas Jefferson put it, it. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't matter to me whether my neighbor believes in one God or 10 gods. It neither uh, picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Uh, that's a utilitarian argument. Uh, so, and argument for women's equality. Uh, there are many, many arguments that, in fact, appeal to the notion that, uh, you know, ain't no one's business if I do. If no one gets hurt, what consenting adults do in private, these are all utilitarian arguments. And so paradoxically, they're, they're cool in the sense that they often are on the progressive side of things. And they do t overall tend to win the day. Uh, but if you lay them out as calculations, then you're right. They seem yeah. uh, you know, uh, tragically unhip. Yeah, it's just the word utilitarian doesn't sound <laughs> That itself is a bad, bad, bad branding. It's, I was just going to say, it's got an image yeah. problem. Um, well, I think I think we have reached the the point of our interview where we can finally discuss the pandemic of poppycock. Uh, um, indeed, and I, I could not it, get away without a chapter uh, that I call "What's Wrong with People," knowing that if you bring up the topic of rationality, the first question you get is, "Why is the world losing its mind?" Uh, and yeah. there isn't a simple a single answer to that because there isn't a single kind of of uh, poppycock. Um, but I think it's, uh, in, in part, it's, um, it comes from the fact that we uh, partly motivated reasoning, namely because rationality is always in service of a goal, that goal needn't always be universal objective truth. It can be the, my own uh, reputation, esteem, respect, deference. It can be the glory of my, uh, my sect, my tribe, my coalition, my party. Uh, the, the so-called my side bias, which our friend Keith Stanovich has re recently written a book about. So that's a major component. People care more about glorifying their um, political coalition than uh, achieving universal objective truth. So that's, that's one. Another is that we're all, as humans, vulnerable to certain kinds of deep-seated intuitions. We're um, dualists, as Paul Bloom has argued, that we think that people have a, a body and a mind, and from there, there it's a short step to imagining minds that aren't attached to bodies, namely souls and ghosts and spirits, and hence uh, ESP and psychic powers. We are all um, essentialists, as uh, Susan Gelman and others have, have argued. We, take, we think that living things have a internal uh, invisible essence that gives them their form and their powers, and so we're subject to homeopathy, we're skeptical about vaccines, we're open to um, uh, bloodletting and medics and detoxification, uh, things that intuitively feel like ridding the body of, of uh, poisons. Hugo Mercier has shown that uh, bloodletting is found in many, many cultures as a kind of quack cure. Um, we're all teleologists. Uh, Deb Kellerman has uh, emphasized this so that we, we, we know that our own tools and 
plans and artifacts were designed with a purpose. And it's a short, short step to think that the, the world was designed for a purpose. The universe, everything happens for a reason. So we become, it's easy to become creationists. So these are all implanted in us because of our evolutionary history. The question isn't why people believe these things, but why some of us don't believe them. Why do we actually believe that the mind is a product of the brain? Why do we believe that signs of design in a living world come from evolution? Well, it's because some of us not only have a scientific education, but we trust the scientists. There, there, there are people, uh, what they say is good enough for us. If you aren't in that social sphere of influence, then uh, you're liable to fall back either on your own intuitions or on communities that ratify those intuitions that might run afoul of the scientific consensus. But the scientific consensus you think of as just another, uh, another clique, another tribe, they're not my clique or my, or my tribe. Finally, I think there is a sense that um, uh, why people believe weird things, it depends on what you mean by belief. And there's a category of belief that isn't the same as literal belief that there's, there's milk in the fridge or, or, or gas in the car where it's um, provably true or false. Um, uh, Robert Abelson, the, the great social psychologist, differentiated between uh, distal beliefs and, um, uh, uh, and testable beliefs, where there's a whole realm of things like, you know, does God exist? What's the origin of the universe? What are the bankers and presidents that act and, and, and powerful people actually doing in secret? where uh, you, you can't find out if you're an ordinary person and you don't really care because you can't, you can never find out anyway. And so you believe things that are socially uplifting, that are make your side look good, make the other side look bad, that are entertaining. Uh, and we all, to some extent, swallow these not quite true, not quite false uh, beliefs in religion in historical fiction, in national mythology, where, you know, whether they're literally true or false, well, we just you know, don't care that much, but we do know that they are inspiring, uplifting, entertaining. And when it comes to beliefs outside of people's personal sphere of day-to-day -day living, they, uh, whether they believe it is not a matter of whether they can show that they're true or false, but whether it is morally um, empowering to believe them. And I think a lot of crazy Gee, beliefs, was, you know, so, you know, was Barack Obama a Muslim? Did Hillary Clinton ring, uh, run a, uh, a, a pedophile ring out of the basement of a, of a pizzeria? Uh, if you say you believe it, it isn't so much that you have grounds for believing it, but it's a way of saying, boo, Hillary. Uh, namely, that's the kind of thing that she could be capable of. She's such a bad person. Well, there was a phrase that um, I thought was really interesting. It's called expressive rationality. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good you know? a good way of putting yeah. it. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, that really uh, resonated with me. And uh, and and the distinction between these two realms, as you put it, and the distinction between reality and mythology. Mythology is very powerful. It can have a very powerful effect, as many cult leaders over the years have discovered, and religious leaders and political leaders. It's all the same thing. Really. Yeah, and the way of thinking but, about it, and, and this is uh, played out very convincingly by Jonathan Rauch in his new book, The Constitution of Knowledge. So we almost shouldn't ask the question, why do people, uh, why, why do uh, 
people believe weird things as much as why do at least some people some of the time believe true things? Uh, and the answer to that is it's not because they are particularly rational, they have better brains, or uh, it's because they have embedded themselves in a community with norms and rules and institutions that are explicitly designed to weed out falsehoods and to steer the entire community towards truth. Institutions like science with empirical testing and scholarship with peer review and journalism with fact-checking and the court system with adversarial uh, proceedings and government with checks and balances and free speech and by letting kind of one person's uh, bias thinking bump up against another person's bias thinking, then no one gets to impose their crazy beliefs on everyone else, but the community as a whole is playing a game that will move them all toward truth when, when it works. Although, of course, it's always imperfect and it's always being uh, corroded. Yeah. I mean, if you live your life like a scientist, like 24 seven, then don't you, you never have a belief, right? Well, like, I, I that's, that, that, that word doesn't really. I, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, you could have a degree of credence. You could be a Bayesian and say, I, I, I put, you know, point, point 0.9 uh, in a scale of zero to one uh, credence on that belief. So that is, I, I believe it. I might even, I mean, going back to signal detection theory, I'm going to act on it, even though I'm uncertain, because. Uh, the costs of being wrong and not acting on, on it are worse than the costs of acting on it if I'm if I'm wrong and it's not really uh, true. Uh, and uh, you you assume that the truth that there is a truth and that you don't know it. Uh, you try the community tries. You try to get as close as possible, always leaving open the possibility that you might be mistaken. Right. So. I think it makes sense to believe that there's a certain high probability that something is true, I, you know, in terms of probabilities, but that seems like a different that, statement. That, that's right. And that is, saying, I believe this to be certain. Exactly. And that's the, the Bayesian approach is to um, treat degree of credence as a probability, uh, a number between zero and one. But it is, but you're right that it's part of the um, commitment to epistemic humility to fallibility uh, to considering the possibility that you might be mistaken that is inherent to science it's inherent to democracy it's inherent to liberalism it's inherent to to uh, humanism here here you're you know you 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 make this point you say i love this i'm actually gonna i think i'm gonna tweet this quote of yours uh after our conversation each of us has a motive to prefer our truth, but together we're better off with the truth. Um, I'm just going to conclude this interview by saying, in an era in which rationality seems both more threatened and more essential than ever, I do agree that your book is an affirmation of the uh, urgency of rationality. So congratulations on, on the publication of the book, Stephen. Thanks so much, Scott. As always, it's been uh, stimulating and enjoyable to, to uh, speak with you. Yeah, I feel the same way. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 